Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. We're here today with Bob Glazer. He has written a terrific little book called Elevate, Push Beyond Your Limits and Unlock Success in Yourself and Others. Bob's the founder and CEO of global performance marketing agency, Acceleration Partners. And the book is specifically created to be a quick read uh, and also has a lot of gems in it. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with Bob today. Bob, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks for having me, Peter. So, Bob, what is capacity building? That's the point of this book, is to increase our capacity. And I find myself always saying to people, you know, I want, I want us to increase our capacity too, to act in the world, to be powerful, to have deep conversations. What does capacity building mean? Uh, I'll give you the, the, the deeper definition and then, mm-hmm. and then a simple one. So I think the complex definition is the method by which individuals seek, acquire, and develop the skills and ability to perform at a higher level in pursuit of their innate potential. Uh, the simple uh, formula, I like to say, or the, or, or the simple definition is it's how you get better. And, you know, we've, we found um, ourselves talking about as our business grew in leadership and, and talking about our bench strength and teams, we found ourselves using that term a lot. Like, you know, P- does Peter have the capacity to take on the next now level the next responsibility and we found ourselves um, focused on that a lot and then trying to think about how we could build um, capacity holistically in people um, we, we've averaged about 30 percent growth for 10 years and and it, you know with that kind of change in the organization you constantly need people to, to step up and, right. and and do new things what's the difference between capacity and potential you talk, you hear a lot about high potential and high what's the difference between those two I I I uh, I think one's the sort of end and one's the means, right? I I when you talk about people's potential, I I, I think there it, it can be very loaded. What I look about at potential is like it has to be. And this gets into spiritual capacity, and we'll go into it. Has to be applied to what's most important to you. I don't think a lot of us reach our potential doing something that we really don't want to do or that doesn't fulfill us. So we reach our highest potential when we're clear about what we want, and then we get really excited about raising our, our game to get it there. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think there are a lot of people out there who, who really haven't focused or have low spiritual capacity who are who are really crushing it. And we call them successful, which I think is, an you know, and they're, but they're just not happy. There's no enjoyment in what they're doing, but they're doing a really good job at it. <laughs> so um, that, that's where I think, I think potential is the difference between, you know, simply like what we could do and, and what we're doing. A lot of times we need to align the sort of why and the where we're going to really want to elevate into that, into that potential. Right. Yeah, that sounds right. I, I actually, I don't, I don't know that I've ever met anyone who didn't have high potential. So for me, that term of potential misses the boat. It kind of says, you know, yeah, like if you think that someone's high potential, like what are you saying about everybody else? That they're low potential, (laughs) you know, that they, they don't have the capacity to grow and develop beyond where they are right now that they, you know, and, and uh, I think we don't really talk about that, but it's implicit as soon as we sort of talk about, you know, what different people's potentials are. 
Yeah, and I think when we talk about someone who's crushing it, oh, this person is doing amazingly well and I can't compete with them or they have some advantage. I think we say that because it feels better about ourselves to not acknowledge that rather than some advantage over they have of us, they are really fulfilling their potential. And we it's just it's easier to believe they have some some cheat sheet than to say, I'm not doing everything that I could do. Yeah. And I think in that way, it it speaks to people's um, oftentimes frustration that they may not be in the right situation or they may not be doing the right things. But really what it's related to is they feel like they have more to give and more to contribute and more to play. And yet somehow they're not getting there. Somehow, you know, they're leaving a lot of stuff on the table. Yeah. And, you know, I wrote an article recently and had a lot of interesting comments around creating an alternative path for great individual contributors in an organization. So there's a great example of what we're talking about. Some people don't have capacity for leader or you'd say, look, they don't have, Peter doesn't have a great capacity for leadership, but like Peter doesn't want to lead. Peter wants to be a great doer, right? He wants to go sell more, build more products, all that stuff. So as you said before, I'm not, I'm not, you're, I might see that your capacity, I might feel your capacity for leadership is low, but I, but I shouldn't have pushed you to lead a team if you have zero interest in leading a team and you don't like leading a team, right? You, you might just like selling more or engineering more or delivering more. Um, you know, transferring into a leadership role is pretty much undoing everything that's made you a, a good individual contributor today. Right, right. I think that's 100% right. And I, I like to make this distinction, uh, you know, between like potential and interest and passion, right? Because yeah. I ultimately, like I've coached enough people to know that, you know, in with, with the right framework and focus and you know, like, anybody has the potential to lead. Like, I yeah. really believe that. Like, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't have the potential for leadership. Right. And you might have to, you know, I'm a lot of my work is around emotional courage. And you might have to feel things you don't want to feel in right. order to lead effectively. You might have to give up and let go of things in order to lead effectively. But there's nobody who doesn't have the potential to lead. I mean, I, I just, I've coached enough people to know that. But there's a lot of people, to your point, who don't want to lead. Yeah. And and who feel pushed into leadership because that's the only way to rise in an organization. So your point about really celebrating individual contributors and talent. I was coaching someone recently where they really want to lead but constantly do things that get in the way of their own leadership. And really where they shine is as being talent, like really being yeah. an individual contributor. But they don't necessarily want to do what it will take to lead, but they don't right. want to necessarily give up the leadership role. And that is That's the worst of all one. possible yeah. ways, right? Right. <laughs> that, that, right. That's con consciously incompetent, right? Right. And, and, and right. It's consciously you, incompetent, right? <laughs> but usually the, 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 right. The, the danger is unconsciously incompetent, right. but, it, usually that's the point where if you want it bad enough, you're willing to work through it. Like right. if you if you just want to be anointed, then I would probably argue they actually don't want it. There's something about the title or the status of that. that right. They probably think that they want, but they probably don't want it. Or they are unconsciously incompetent, meaning they think they're better. At, you know, they're getting right. a lot yeah. of feedback saying they're not very good at it, but they but they don't believe that feedback because they think the problem is everybody else and they're actually really great leaders. But if you're a great leader. It's unconsciously competent. Yeah, and 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 also if you, if everybody's complaining about your leadership, no matter what you think about your leadership, you have problems in your leadership, right? Like the yeah, we, we we actually just rolled out a manager effectiveness score in our organization because we said, look, the number one job of a manager is to be a good manager. So if everyone on their team thinks they're a bleep manager, like we we got a problem and we need to know that. Right. Right. 
uh, a friend of mine sort of likes to say, if if one per I mean, he's the CEO of a company, and this is going to sound a little harsh, but he said, uh, if, I, if I know the analogy here, think, right? Yeah. Like if one person on a team is complaining about the leader, then we fire that person. If everybody is complaining about the leader, then we fire the yeah. leader, right? You know, like there's equivalent. If you, if you meet an a hole at 10 a.m. in the morning, then they're probably an a hole. If you meet a holes all day, you're probably the yeah, right. Yeah, you've heard that. Yeah, that's the <laughs> same kind of thing. All right, so you you open with and start talking about spiritual capacity, which I absolutely love because it's not something that we talk about in organizations. It's critical to to all of our lives. You talk about it as understanding who you are and what you want most and the standards you want to live by each day. Uh, and and I love this Warren uh, Bennis quote, the become, becoming a leader is synonymous with becoming yourself. It's precisely that simple and it's also that difficult. Yeah, so it's not religious, um, but it was the best term I could encompass it. I, I, I believe strongly that everyone should be able to articulate their core values. I think that your personal core values, and then actually you could pretty see whether you're aligned to the organization that, that you're at, if their core values are, are true. But I think we have them, we feel them, we feel good when we're living in alignment with them. We, as a leader, we, when we cross them, we feel bad. The difference with some people is they can articulate, oh, here's why, and other people, they just, they know that they've crossed that, that boundary. So we work with our leaders on developing their own personal core values, being able to put them on their desk, being able to communicate to their team. And we just had some really interesting breakthroughs when people realize, you know, what is most important with them and being able to communicate that to their team. I, I don't, think you can be an authentic leader if, if you're not clear about your core values and can articulate that to the people who work for you. So let me challenge you with two things around values. One is one of the things that I've often seen is that people have like, you know, 10 values. And yeah. and the problem with the, the challenge of values is not that any of those 10 values are wrong. But the problem is that some of those values come into conflict with each other. And when yeah. they come into conflict with each other, the choice you make is your actual value. And that's the other challenge, which is that people have aspirational values versus their actual value. We are all every day, and this is the same question I have around purpose, we're living out of our purpose and out of our values every day. But they we, may not just, be... But 98% of us don't un, no, know it. We're bouncing off the wall. We're bouncing off the wall. No one painted the lanes for us, right? Yeah. That's yeah. And, and, yeah. and I also think they're not necessarily the values we would choose or, you know, if we were conscious or intentional about it or the purpose we would choose. But it just happens to be that, like, you know, that comes out of our culture and our upbringing and, like, the you know, we never ask questions about it. And I – like, what I wonder about is when someone chooses a value that is discordant with the values they grew up with. You know, let's say, let's say the value I grew up with is, you know, I'm competitive – and I, and I, I, I want to make as much money as I possibly can. And the value I choose is I want to be sort of generous and connected to others and, uh, and, and give a lot of money away. How, how do you, so there's this value I grew up in and then there's this value, you know, it's sort of like my, the, the, my current value versus my aspirational value. How do you help people? So, so, so I don't I, I I'll, I'll it's a great question. I'll disagree with some of it. I agree with you that they're not aspirational values, just like in a company. You don't say, what do we want to be? You say, what is the DNA of our best people? Like, I think companies screw up core values because they're trying to make them into marketing slogans. Right. And to me, they're the DNA of, the, of, the, of your best people and that you could sit down and have a conversation around that value with them and say you're doing well at it or, or you're not doing well. So I, I think that 
for most people, it is a process of discovery. And as I've done this with a lot of business leaders, they realize that a lot of these values run deep to childhood or to formative experiences where they are trying to run with something or against something. But I actually think it is their purpose. And, and so, you know, the example I give and, and, and it, sometimes people struggle like with with not wanting to own that because they feel like they're blaming someone else versus just owning it. I, I worked with a leader recently who 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 realized that self-awareness was critical to them. It was like important to them because they had a parent that really embarrassed them as a child type of person who was never self-aware, walked into a room, didn't read the room, and they and they lived with that their whole childhood. And what they realized was as a leader in the organization, when they had people who showed signs of lack of self-awareness, they would sort of disproportionately come down on them and they had really kind of struggled in those situations. After going through this process, they were actually able to go back, articulate that, recognize that in themselves, tell tell that to the team and and and, and really improve the the relationship. So I, I actually find most a lot of people's core values come from a pace, place of, 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 of pain because whatever that thing was, whatever I'm overcompensating for for my kid, they're going to be at, you know 30 overcompensating for. I think that's fine. I think you just need to acknowledge that and realize that that is really, really important to you and, and it's driving you. Um, and, and a lot of the times, one of the ways in my process of discovering your core value is when you know you've got it right is when you picture the antithesis of the core value as a person. And, and, and you're sitting at a party talking to that person. So if I have a value around gratitude and you are you are a trust fund entitled baby, Peter, and we meet at a, at a party and we're talking and you're like, oh, I'm so, it's so upset. I can only go on four vacations. And, and I just might I, like I want to like, you know, <laughs> explode you know, that you usually that's a good sign that you're sort of, you know, directly in in, in conflict with with this person's value. Now, if you don't know that, you'll kind of go off, uh, you know, just walk away or blow up. If you know it, you're like, oh, now I, you know what? This is what's happening right now. This is why I'm getting physically sort of, you know, upset about this rolling. You, you, you actually then have the ability to manage it better once you can understand it and be aware of it. Let's talk about intellectual capability. You talk about it as uh, improving your ability to think, learn, plan, execute with discipline. And, and again, a quote that I love that you have in the book, John Foster Dulles, the measure of success is not whether you have a tough problem to deal with, but whether it's the same problem you had last year. <laughs> So, you know, I love yeah. that. And so many of us actually really do have the same problems we had last year. Is that really an intellectual capacity issue? I mean, yes and no. So to me, intellectual capacity is your operating system. And I think people often think about doing more. But if you take a computer and you update its processor, you know, it processes the tasks easier and with less energy. So if I if I... It, it, I do think if you're making the mistake over and over again, so one that crosses over a lot for people is difficult conversations, right? Really like gets into emotional capacity. People struggle with difficult conversations. There's some incredible material out there by people like Kim Scott, Patty McCord, or, you know, podcasts you can listen to, books you can read, that you can update your software for having difficult conversations. And when you do that a couple of times, suddenly you will have less stress, less energy, and otherwise, if difficult conversations is a core part of your job and you haven't gotten any better at it in two years, then you know, you're know you not really moving forward. So I, I see intellectual capacity as once you know what you want, how you improve and just get better at locking in on, on, on getting it. And that's why I do think we're better at growing our intellectual capacity when we're clear about what we want and what we want to accomplish. You talk about not being reactive, which I agree 100%. That's like a critical piece. And, you know, yeah. talking about difficult conversations, that's a critical piece. 
Um, my question is, is that an intellectual capacity issue or an emotional capacity issue? When I'm, when I'm reactive or I watch people reactive, it feels like it's coming more of an, out of an amygdala than a neocortex, like out of a, a, an emotional responsive uh, place than an intellectual one. So that one is both because I think, you know, your ability to have the tools in emotional capacity that you need to improve at it sort of come from improving your toolbox. So I, you know, having been through a lot of coaching and training and like, you know, how I would react to difficult feedback 10 years ago, it's physiologically different now, right? I've, I've taught myself, I've trained myself, now I've gone through, like, it's a feedback loop, right? So I've, I've gone through the process of intellectual capacity to learn how to say, thank you for the feedback, repeat it, all that stuff. If you probably measured my blood pressure and other things right now, they are totally different than seven or eight years ago. So I, I, I do think you you upgrade your, 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 your system. Like the first couple of times you do it, you're like, I know the right thing to do, even though it doesn't feel good. But then you go through a couple of cycles and suddenly like that's your new operating system. And what do we do in, in you know, this, the, the difference between knowing that I should do it versus actually doing it, right? Like how do I, like I could reorganize my operating system conceptually, yeah. but in the heat of the moment, you know, how do I actually follow through on that? I, I, I think you just have, you got to practice, right? I think it, it is, it is one of the things I say that with, with, if, if you think about spirit, a race car, so spiritual capacity is sort of designing the race car, intellectual is building it, physical is kind of testing it out on the track, but then you got to put it on a track with cars going 200 miles an hour. And suddenly like that car may do a lot worse or a lot better, depending on how you react to the things um, around you. So I, I don't think there's a substitute for, for practice in this case and, and practicing, you know, difficult conversations and the things that you don't want to do. I mean, even mentally, you can go through the preparation of here's what it's going to be. Here's what's my, you know, the Stoics used to like, you know, one of the things they talked about was just, you know, eulogies in their head of everyone they knew, like, you know, just mentally preparing for that process so that when they faced it, it is not something that they're processing for the first time. Uh, let's get this tip out of Warren Buffett's advice on the top 25 career goals, because I really like that. Yeah, so it's a great story. Uh, uh, there, there's some debate of whether it's urban legend or not, but we'll go with it because uh, it, it still serves the purpose. But Warren Buffett was talking to his pilot about his goals, and he said, uh, make a list of your top 25 goals. And, and he did that. And he said, okay, come back and tell me the five that you really want most. And, they, and, and he did that too. So they talked about that. And he said, all right, well, you're going to focus on those five. He said, yeah, I'm going to focus on these five and I'll give less attention you know, to the other 20. And Buffett said, no, 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 Mike, you don't get it. Like, you don't even look at that top 20. That top 20, that other 20 list will actually get in the way of you getting those top five goals done. So the, 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 the learning there is like figure out what you want most, reduce the distractions, get the stuff you want done most and that the other stuff will actually detract you from what you want most. And, and the way I've heard it also, which is a little different is, and then you look at the top five and you take and you choose the top one of those and the bottom four, you assiduously avoid meaning, you know, until you get one done, yeah. until you get one done. like yeah. you, you actually, they go on your not to do list because you can't even really get five things done. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, there's, there, there's a lot of, and I agree with you on not having too many core values for most people. I think three, four, five is perfect. They don't help you as a decision maker. If you can't remember what they are, you have to go. So when companies brag about their core values and the person pulls the thing out of their pocket on the, and I'm like, they don't know the core values if they have to pull the thing out of the pocket. Like right. our core values at our company are own it, embrace relationships and excel and improve. You hear it every day you hear people say that's not owning it we should embrace relationships like if, if they had to pull it off of an index card then it isn't really internalized right right it's great uh talk about physical capacity 
yeah, I mean, we only have one car to get through life or one vehicle. And if you if, if you don't maintain it, and you put shitty fuel in it, uh, then it's not it's not going to do very well. So, you know, we understand, I think, you know, think about, you know, how you're feeling, you know, what what your sleep, stress, um, just your physical capacity when you when you're exhausted and you show up to work, you know, you that you have this affects everything, right? Intellectual capacity. It's harder to learn. It's harder to pay attention if you're really stressed out. You're more irritable with people. I think your physical capacity, you know, acts as an an accelerant or or a drag on on all of the other capacities. And most of us, you know, wait until something really breaks. Uh, we don't do the preventative maintenance. You know, one of the things about stress, my friend Dr. Heidi Hanna, uh, who's sort of a world expert in stress, talks about is that you know we're using fight or flight mechanism all day long these days. It's not what's designed to resolve in our system. It's we're using it in way, you know, we're supposed to save our life and we're kind of using it all the time now. And, and and it's not, it's making us sick and it's, 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 you know, reducing our physical capacity. I want to challenge your assertion in the book that one man's medicine is another man's poison in terms of diet. And, and I am curious because you may have done more research on this than I have, but I, I think we know, for example, that there's sort of zero downside to reducing the amount of meat that we eat and zero downside to eating lots of more fruits and vegetables. And if like there's certain things that we know, and I think, you know, we sort of tend to stay away from that. Now, you might disagree with me. You might say, actually, I think it's much better to eat a ton of meat and no fruits and vegetables. But but it's I'm not telling everybody to go vegan. But I think like we know some things about. Yeah, about it. And I and, and I'm curious why not advocate for that or, yeah, or you I may disagree. I, I think it's a hybrid. Look, clearly like tons of refined sugar is not good for us. I just, I said it in the context of all the various diets going around. I just right. interviewed with Ben Greenfield, you know, who sort of reaffirmed this as one of the top fitness gurus in the world. People, you know, we come from different geographical areas. We've moved faster than our bio biology has kept up. So there are definitely certain people's systems that react differently. And I just, I, I say that because people go on a diet they put it all over Instagram. They encourage everyone else to do it. They get very in their face around it. And really, one diet for one person may be the opposite of something that someone wants to do. Like, there are a lot of people doing keto diets right now, and some people react really well. Some people have a dangerous cholesterol reaction to, to a keto diet that right. sort of threatens their health. Right. So I just I, I agree with you. There are some things that have universal uh, applicability. But like, let's say you're like really low iron or you, you're not naturally anemic, then you, you probably, being a vegan, may cause more you know, harm in that case than good. I'm, I, and I'm grossly generalizing here, but that was more in the context of what, I, what I've seen is that when people jump on a fad, they make everyone believe or a new thing that, that everyone has to do this. And there's a lot of tests these days that really determine like where you have issues, what you react to, what you might be allergic to. And, and you may double the damage by following something that's not meant for your body. Let's jump into emotional capacity. You talk about the importance of changing our limiting beliefs. Yeah. How? <laughs> I, this is a great exercise. Look, I think a lot of these things came from our childhood. Things people said to us inadvertently. I, I, you know, sometimes I have to be really careful. I remember the things that my I might say as a joke to my kids that they sort of remember and they'll be in therapy on. You know, at thirty, being like, my dad told me, you know, I couldn't do that. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I think one of the things there's a great exercise of like of actually writing something down. So when you say like. You say like someone says, hey, want to run a triathlon? Well, why can't I run a triathlon? And you say, I couldn't do that. Well, why? And you list the reasons out uh, and, and you keep saying a why until you get four or five of them. And then you keep answering like how you could mitigate that factor. 
And, and I, I just think it's easier to hide behind self-limiting beliefs than to face the work that needs to be done. My, my, my parental phrase that I've accepted, uh, that I've sort of adopted with my kids now, which I think really gets these two spectrums. There's one spectrum of, you know, kind of destroying visions. Uh, I think some people say, oh, you couldn't do that. I mean, that's the worst thing, you know, you can say. And then, and then there's this other spectrum of, oh, you can be whatever you want to be uh, without any context to that, which I think is also a little disillusionment. So I like, you know, you, you can have anything you desire as you're willing to do what's required. So if one of my kids said to me, I want to be an astronaut, an Olympic athlete, I'd say, I believe that you can do that. Here's what it takes. And here's what it looks like to be an Olympic athlete or an astronaut. Here's how they practice. Here's what you need to do. Here's the, in the case, the grades you want to have. So I, I think that's really important in terms of being, being realistic. Um, but, but understanding that if you want something, it's, it's available to you. You talk about having a positive attitude and the importance of resilience, and that feels like a critical element to building your emotional capacity. Um, how do you help people when they're feeling negative shift to a positive attitude? Yeah, I, I, the best tactic is to really get people to understand what they control and what they don't control. So recently we had a leadership training for a bunch of our team, and the facilitator said to everyone, this is one of their biggest takeaways from the day, he said, you know, if you control it, why worry about it? And if you don't control it, why worry about it? Because you don't control it, right? And 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 if you control it, you why worry about it? Because you control it. And and I think that's true. Oftentimes we overreact to whatever the thing was. Certainly, like there's a car crash or something happens, but then we are actually fairly in control of what happens next and how we apply our energy. And I think it's very liberating to take control of that and, and, and believe that, 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 you know, we can change the, the outcome of, of the situation. So I always say, I joke around, like one of my barometers of no, no pun intended of, of emotional capacity days is, is the rain and the weather. Like, you know, these people who look at their app all day long, oh my God, it's going to rain tomorrow or whatever. Like, I look at it just to know oh, it's going to rain tomorrow. Maybe we should go to the movies or like put on the raincoat. Like if you get that stressed about things that you don't control and really focus on it all day long, it just really shifts your mindset into this sort of victimless passenger rather than a driver. Yeah, there's, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of evidence that who you surround yourself with determines, you know, what you end up doing and what your experience is. So, you know, if you want to eat well, but you're constantly in a setting where people are eating, you know, a ton yeah. of fried food, then, then the ch your chances go down quite a bit. And, yeah. and, uh, and there's lots of research that's been done around there. So what I'm curious about is how do you manage the dynamic of maybe having these newfound values, right? I'm pulling all this together. So you've built your spiritual, yeah. your intellectual, your physical, and your emotional capacity. You have values. You're living out of purpose. You're, you know, kind of expanding your, your capacity to learn and your eating well and exercising, but you're living in a context, in an organization, in a family and with friends who, uh, who don't, who, who, who don't do all of these things. And it's very easy to draw back. Everyone around you is eating a pint of ice cream and you're just sitting there not. Yeah. So if you, don't want, if you don't want to drink, don't hang around with people who go to bar four nights a week. Right. right? And, and yet if your whole community is are drinkers and they all go to bar and yeah. everybody's drinking at dinner, how do you manage that dynamic? Yeah, it's not easy. And, and I, and I say this in the book, when, when, when you're starting to really lock in on your spiritual, intellectual and physical 
and, and you get that humming, you're going to have some difficult decisions. So you're going to have to choose in those cases between going back to the behaviors that you don't like or want to do, or probably changing your circumstance, changing your relationships, changing your geography. Um, if you really believe in those things a lot, changing how you interact with some people in your family. Um, the one tool that's been really helpful to me, and I, I had him on my podcast recently, a gentleman named Don DePonde, who sort of shared was when you talk about energy vampires or people that bring you down or to the activities that you don't want, he sort of advocated for this approach of like, you don't need a breakup. You know, you don't need a breakup with a family. You don't need a breakup with a friend. You just need a reapplication of energy. Like, so I'm going to stop making, hey, Peter, we should catch up. Like, if I really don't want to catch up, like, I just don't say that, right? I don't have to have a like, throw down brawl with you. I just, I cut the frequency, I cut the following up. And um, that's been a really helpful tool to me to sort of just shift myself away from from people in groups that I felt like uh, I needed to make that shift from. But we moved, it, it was just a neutral thing. It was, there was never a, it was never a, a, a you don't have to have a, you don't have to have a big conversation airing all of your differences or things like that. No, and I think that that's what people think. And, and actually that makes, that's more taxing on emotional capacity than, Again, he said, this guy's a Hindu priest and was a Buddhist monk, and he says, I don't ask people how they are if I don't want to know. <laughs> you know he's, talking about, he's talking about small talk. It's like the people who I ask, how are you doing, and I get a 20-minute you know, complaint about their life, I just don't ask them that anymore. Like, right. It's just a very simple <laughs> tactic. That's, that's really great. We've been talking with Bob Glazer. His uh, newest book is Elevate, Push Beyond Your Limits and Unlock Success in Yourself and Others. It's an incredibly practical read and a lot of fun. Bob, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.